you so much for doing that. If you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Amos, chapter 3. Amos, towards the end of the Old Testament, after the books of Hosea and Joel. Not a very popular book to preach from, and actually, I think in all of my years of preaching, this is probably, I think, really only the second time I've ever preached from the book of Amos. And the first time, I totally blew it. So we'll hope this one's better <laughs> this time. This morning, we're going to take a few moments to read some words from this Old Testament prophet and see how they tie into our Advent theme of hope, as Miss Celia so beautifully read to us about from Isaiah's prophecy as well. This morning, as you're turning there to the book of Amos and hopefully finding it, I have these questions for you to ponder. Number one, what are the things that you most look forward to in a typical week? Okay, now your mind is reeling and you have all these things, right, that, that kind of get you through your typical day and your typical week and you look forward to happening either at the end of the day of a long day or at the end of a long and, and busy week. And so maybe uh, you are busy and running around all week long like we are, my family are most days. And the thing that you look forward to the most all week is the evening time uh, when you get to unwind and maybe read a book or watch some TV or some sports and take a shower, get into bed and relax, right? That's what we look forward to. And it doesn't always work out that way, but it's one of the things that fuels us through our day. Uh, maybe at the end of a long, busy week, you really look forward to the weekend when you get to go and do all the things that you didn't get to do all week long, right? I know for me, one of my favorite things to do on Saturdays is to not set an alarm clock and just let the smell of the coffee wake me up naturally and then get up and make a big breakfast that nobody eats. That's my favorite thing to do on Saturdays, right? And my son, my children's favorite thing to do all day Saturday is to sit in their underwear for five hours and watch TV. And we let them do that because they deserve a break, right? Uh, so we all know that feeling, don't we? The feeling of having something to look forward to all day long or all week long. Or maybe you have something that you have to look forward to that comes up once a year, right? I know for a lot of people, it's Christmas. A lot of kids have Christmas to look forward to, or it's your birthday, um, or it's a special trip that your family takes on a regular basis every year. I know for us, um, you know, the summer is a big deal for us. We really look forward to that summer break, getting to be at home with our kids and travel and go do some fun stuff and go camping and, and things like that. And so we have those things that drive us, right? That kind of push us through all the mundane realities of our days and even all the difficulties and all the struggles. Um, whatever your thing is, whatever it is that you use to fill in that blank, I think we can all agree that having these things gives us hope and fuel to get through each week and each month and each year, right? It makes it not feel as long and not feel as tiring and as difficult. But here's another question for you to ponder. What would life be like if you did not have any of those things to look forward to? If you had nothing to look forward to, you had nothing to anticipate, no future joy on the horizon, whether it's short-term or long-term, if you had none of those things, what would life be like for you? What would it feel like for you if all you had was the daily struggle? Right. If all you had was the realization that life would continue the way that it was every day, every year, and there was nothing that would really ever lessen the burden of it. Does that make you feel plenty depressed for a moment? If we didn't have anything to look forward to, nothing to long for with hopeful expectation, then life, I think, would be a lot harder, wouldn't it? It'd be a lot more difficult to bear. Well, today we're beginning the Advent season. 
And you may not be used to that being of any kind of importance in your life. As I know that I wasn't for a long time until the last few years. And not a lot of people, not, not very many people really understand the difference between the Advent season and the Christmas season. But one thing that we hope to communicate, that I hope to communicate um, during this season of the year is that Advent really is one of the most important times of the year for the believer. And if traditionally the Advent season has not had a prominent role in your life, my hope and my prayer is, is to change that. That through our, our candles and our songs and our sermons and our prayers and our scripture reading, that being a part of these four Sundays leading up to Christmas will make some kind of difference in your perspective. In your perspective on your life, on the coming of Jesus, and on what we even wake up to celebrate on the morning of December the 25th. Because that, that we, my, my prayer is that this season will not just slow us down, that is a big part of it, but that it will also cause us to ponder that arrival of Jesus. That it will also provide for us this reminder that we, as God's people, do have something incredible to look forward to. Right? We have something that doesn't just come up at the end of a week or a busy day or at the end of a busy year, but that we have something spiritually significant that we have to look forward to. And that thing that we have to look forward to is more than just gifts under a tree or a big Christmas celebration on Christmas morning or lunch with your family or the nap after all the festivities are over. The thing that we really have to look forward to has everything to do with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Advent has been observed as a season on the church calendar since about the 4th century A.D., about the 300s, 400s, um, centuries and centuries ago. There's not a whole lot of certainty or consensus about who started the Advent season or why it even came about, but the common understanding is that way back in the 300s and 400s, the Christian church began to set aside the four weeks on the church calendar leading up to Christmas in order to help prepare themselves, the believers, the church, for that celebration of the birth of Christ. And during these four weeks, believers would engage in special prayers and fasting, some spiritual activities, um, special worship, as they sought to prepare their hearts to celebrate the arrival of the Messiah. And one thing that over time became incredibly clear was that Advent actually had a double meaning, a double implication. You see, the word Advent comes from, our, our English word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, Adventus, okay, which actually comes from a Greek word, the Greek word parousia, which means presence or arrival, all right? So for the first two weeks of Advent, the church would focus its attention and its heart and its worship and its prayers and its scripture on the second coming of Jesus, that future arrival of Jesus Christ. Those first two weeks of Advent, they, they, would, they would focus only on that, on the fact that one day Christ was going to be coming back to redeem and ransom his people. And so the disciples of the church in those days would spend time confessing and praying over their sins fervently with a broken heart and getting their hearts right with God and, and hoping for the quick coming of the Lord Jesus to come and make things right in the world. And then for the second two weeks of Advent, the church would turn its focus back to the, the initial, the first Advent of Jesus, the first coming and arrival of Christ, Jesus born in the manger in Bethlehem on Christmas Day. You know, Advent was created to remind believers that we reside between two important eras, two important comings, 
We live in this time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And, and so it was designed and intended to give us something to look forward to, not just a celebration, but something in the long term, the future long term to look forward to, something to, to hope for, a certain expectation to cling to and to live by year after year after year until the return of Christ. And that expectation is that just as Christ arrived the first time, born in a manger in his first advent, so he will arrive a second time in his second advent. This time coming to deal a final blow to sin and evil all across the world and to make all things right in the universe, to make all things right among his people and among the church. And, and so that essentially is what Advent is all about, that there's a, a coming, an arrival that we're hoping for and longing for and waiting expectantly for. Today's Advent theme is hope. And as we look at the words of the Lord, in the prophecy of Amos here in Amos chapter 3, is as God speaks to Israel about their sin and about their rebellion against him, we're going to be reminded of the truth that every single one of us needs hope. We all need a dose of hope. We all need hope because we all at times find ourselves and our world being not as we should be. I think all of us can agree with that, right? That we look in the mirror and we look at the world and we compare that to what God's desire is and we realize things are not as they should be. Something is broken and messed up and damaged about this world and about this life. And so we need that hope. We are not as we should be. And yet we have this hope that something, someone is going to come along one day and fix it. He's going to come along one day and fix all of us. And that is what gives us the hope. So look with me now at the book of Amos, chapter 3, verses. I'm, gonna, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, the, all, all 15 verses here. I want you to get the full effect of the, the punishment and the anger that God is pronouncing upon Israel. It says here, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he hath, if he hath taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no, no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Publish in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. And behold, the great tumults in the midst thereof, and, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria, 
in the corner of a bed, and in Damascus in a couch. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. It's pretty clear from this text that Israel had a problem, right? Kind of a big problem. Does it seem to you as you read these verses that God is very happy or pleased with his people? Do you get that impression from that language? Of course not, right? It seems that, that actually God is quite angry with his people for their multitude of sins. And Amos is here to declare to them that God is going to bring about severe discipline and correction and punishment upon his people because of their sins, because of their rebellion and disobedience against him. And so throughout this book of, of, of Amos so far, in the, in the first couple of chapters, Amos has already been giving this long list of nations and people groups around the world that God was going to deal with because of their sin that God was going to bring punishment upon these nations because they had rebelled in so many different ways against him and against humanity. They had committed crimes against humanity. And so Amos comes along in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he declares this impending wrath for people groups and nations like Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah. And the, there's the long list of all these nations. And all these nations, Amos says, were guilty of so many different sorts of wickedness, all manners of, of acts of evil, both against God and against humanity. Things like injustice and oppression and refusing to help the poor. Things like causing war and rejecting God's law, even failing to show brotherly love. These things had, had caused God's anger to flare up against them. All of these acts were, were acts of evil that God declared to be worthy of his wrath and punishment. And God was, was not going to hold back. As you read the language of the book of Amos, you don't see God holding back. He was angry and he was rightfully angry. I think we can agree with that. Now, it's not surprising to think that these nations and, and people groups were guilty of these things. I mean, these were not people who had a covenant with God. These were not God's people, right? These were, these were nations that lived apart from faith in God. They didn't have that relationship, that bond with God, and so they were not the people of God and therefore had no bondage or, 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 or compulsion to his requirements or his law. They were not a people who had received those requirements. But here's what became even more troubling for Amos and for the Lord. The fact that even Israel... Even God's own people and God's own nation was also on this list. That was the most troubling part. You see, it was one thing for all these nations and people groups to be listed as, as people who had sinned against God and sinned against their fellow human beings. It was completely different and even worse that God's own people were on this list. But even the nation of Israel had become guilty of these sins. That these were the people who, among all the people in the world, were supposed to stay faithful and righteous. They were supposed to abide by that covenant. I mean, look at what God says here in verse 2 to them. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You alone, out of all the people in the world, you are my people. And that's why God took this so seriously. He says, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. 
these people who God has called, who, who God had called His own people, had become just as guilty as the rest of the world of the same sorts of sins against Him and against humanity. I mean, look at the list of transgressions in chapter two. If you look at Amos chapter two, beginning in verse six, it says, "Thus saith the Lord." For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek, and a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. These were some pretty serious accusations against the people of Israel. I mean, they, they had committed these acts of evil against humanity and, and, in fact, rebellion against God, things like preferring possessions over people, right? Ascribing more worth and value to their stuff rather than, their, than the souls of the people around them. They were guilty of things like mistreating and even abusing the poor, ignoring the afflicted among them, sexual sins and perversion, idolatry, and the list could go on and on. And so Amos declares that because of these transgressions, God would not revoke the punishment, that he would have to punish them for all their iniquities. I think we understand this, right? I mean, there's no reason to belabor that point. We get that, right? We, this, this makes sense to us. We all get the reality here that Israel was not as they should have been, right? I mean, we, if we put ourselves in their shoes and we were there among them and we hear these accusations against us, we could have stood up and said, wow, we really messed up. We are really messed up. Like, we are not what we need to be, right? God gave us this, this, this law. He gave us this covenant. He has these expectations for us, and we are so far away from that. We are not what we need to be. And so Israel needed to realize that. They needed to, to come to an awareness of that and come to a place of repentance. They needed to, to take a look at themselves and come to the admission that who they had become was a far throw from what God had wanted them to be. They were not as they should have been. And yet that's where the hope came in. That's where there was room for hope. Because the thing is, Amos could have left it all like this. Right? He could have simply said, wow, you guys are totally messed up. Like you're just flat out evil and, and you better watch your back because God's going to punish you. God's going to get you one day. Judgment is coming. Right. I mean, it reminds us of those people who a long, long time ago used to stand on the street corners with their cardboard signs, you know, that just said judgment is near. I wonder how many people they actually converted in with that method. Like how many people drove by and then like gave their hearts to Jesus because they saw this guy with the cardboard sign that said judgment is near. Right. It's not an effective method because there's no hope involved. So Amos could have left it like that. He could have said, you guys are, you're, you're done for. God's going to punish you. You're going to be wiped out, right? There's nothing left for you to do. But God, God wasn't willing for them to end the message that way. God wanted to declare to his people that there was still, there was still an opportunity for change. There was still room for hope. If you turn with me to the end of the book of Amos, chapter 9. In chapter nine, verses nine, uh, is it chapter chapter nine, verses nine through fifteen? It says, "For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. 
yet shall not the least of grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, The evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof. And I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Verse 13, he says, Behold, the days come, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall be no more. They shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. When I read those verses, all I can think is what a message of hope in those words, right? I mean. Here at the end of the book, after all the sins have been listed, after God has, has, has given all these accusations against Israel, after the punishment has been leveled, and he's saying, here's what is going to happen to you. Judgment is going to come upon your city. You're not going to be able to recover from this. God is saying, but here's the hope. One day, I'm going to make everything better. One day, I'm going to make everything right. right? I mean, here at the end of, of Amos' prophecy, God gives his people this gracious promise. He says, I am going to come upon you and I'm going to fix my people. I'm going to make things right again. I mean, he says there in verse 13, verse 13, the days are coming. There's a, a future coming when things are going to be better for you. When I will, I will repair, I will raise up, I will rebuild, I will restore, I will plant. Things are going to be better. Things are going to be made right and things will never be the same with Israel ever again. And so the days are coming, says the Lord, when things that are not as they should be become exactly what they should be because of the gracious work of God. And that is the message of hope that you and I need this morning. That when things, when we realize that things are not as they should be in our lives or among the church or in the world, when we realize that things are broken, that things are not the way that they should be, our hope is that one day, by the gracious work of God, He's going to make everything right. That's what Advent reminds us of. So even though you and I are not Israel, and even though we have not committed all of those sinful acts that they committed all those generations ago that Amos and the other prophets condemned them for, we need this reminder also. We need the reminder that things are not always the way that God wants them to be with us, with our world, with our society. But because of the gracious gift of God, things will one day be made perfect. Things will one day be made perfect. I mean, I think we can all agree that there are things that take place in our world, and yes, even in our country and even in our little community, that are not the way that God would want them to be, right? Can we all agree with that? That we look all around us and there are things out there and we say, that is just not right. That's not the way that God wants things to be, right? That, that, that things happen all around us and, and even in our midst sometimes that are not pleasing to God. We all understand that. And some of those things happen to mirror the same types of sins that the people of Israel were guilty of back in the days of Amos and the other Old Testament prophets. 
right? I mean, sins against God and sins against humanity. Those things happen even today. Sins against our fellow human beings. Sins like oppression and injustice and ignoring or overlooking the poor and the afflicted, refusing to help people in need, abusing power. And whether we like to admit it or not, there are, there, there are sins that are still present in our world that so many people have fought against and yet continue to spread like poison in our society. Right? Things like, like racism and, and discrimination continue to, to present themselves in our society, even though we all know that God is against those things. And it's so easy for us as a, as a society to look at all those sins around us and, and to look at them with a frustrated heart and to say, that's not who we are. Right? I mean, we, we are better than that. This is not us. We as Americans, we as a world, we as a human race, that's not who we are. And we want to believe that, don't we? We want to believe that we as a people are better than that, than whatever that thing is, those wicked and evil acts, that, that maybe the, the worst of the worst in our midst among our kind do not represent the whole of us. That's what we want to believe, right? Even just as Americans, when we, when we look around and we see our fellow citizens being guilty of doing horrible things against their, their fellow human beings, we look at that and we say, that's not who we are. That does not represent us. And so we like to, to run around declaring that in defiance of the wicked things that we see, that we are more than that. That's not us, right? That that evil act, that terrible thing that those people are doing, that's not us. We know that there are things that happen in this world that are contrary to what God wants for his good world. Back in the book of Amos, in chapter 5, as you read into that passage and you see that, that God moves on from listing their actions to now talking about how he feels about their sins, you see Amos get really direct. God says to the people of Israel, I hate, I despise your feast days and your solemn assemblies. That's really strong language, isn't it? To think that God would hate something. To think that there are things that humans can do that are so contrary to God's will that God would say, I hate that thing. And yet, I think that there are things that happen in our world all around us that God would say, I hate that thing. Right? We we can all agree that there are things that happen all around us that God does not approve of or God despises. But the truth is, there are also things that take place within and even among the body of Christ that are not pleasing to God, right? I mean, there are times when we look at the church, whether in its present form or just historically speaking, and we see some of the sinful actions of God's own people, whether past or present. And we look at that and we say, that is not how God wants his people to behave. And God forbid that any of us would ever be guilty of doing things like that, but think about it. Have you ever witnessed or experienced a Christian saying or doing something that you knew was not Christ-like or godly? Have you ever had an experience with that? I think all of us have probably seen that or observed it or experienced it on a personal level at some point in our lives. I have been around Christians and churches for most of my life since I was a kid. And I, it is not a stretch to say that I have witnessed and experienced people who call themselves Christians saying and doing things and possessing attitudes that are so not pleasing to the Lord. 
And I think we all have, have seen that before, right? I mean, the best example of that was one time in a, in a Sunday school class at a church that we were going to. The Sunday school teacher, somehow the conversation turned towards immigration. People began to share their opinions and, and things like that. And, and the, the Sunday school teacher said, you know what my solution would be? Build a huge electric fence, turn on the electricity, and let them fry. That was his response. In Sunday school, I mean, I was sick to my stomach, you know, like with anger and just disgust at a comment like that. And there are sinful attitudes all throughout the church in general like that. Not only that, though, there are sinful actions. I mean, how many times do we see people who go to worship on Sunday and then they just act like jerks all week long, right? We know people like that. None of us are like that, I hope, but we know people like that. Sometimes in the church, we see people who are just as ungodly and sinful as the world around them. There's no difference being made in their lives. And I don't know about you, but when I see that, it just, it pains me. It makes me sick with, with both anger and a broken heart. Anger because of what I see happening, but a broken heart because I just know this is just not right. And I just want God to fix that. At the same time, though, it makes me just long for the return of Jesus. Because when that day comes, I know that God, that, that Christ is going to purify his church. That Christ is going to make his people perfect. And I am so longing for that day. Not only in our world, though, do we see things that are not as they should be. And not only in the church do we sometimes see things that are not as they should be. But if we're honest, we look at ourselves our own lives, personal lives, and we know that we are not as we should be all the time, right? That there are things that we are struggling with or things that we wrestle with or things that are true about us, maybe our failures, our weaknesses, our, our moments of doubt and fear, and we look at that and we say, this is just not who I need to be. This is not who I want to be as a Christian. I know for myself, I am painfully aware of that sometimes. And it frustrates me. It frustrates me when I struggle with things like pride or with fear or insecurity or a lack of faith. One of my big ones, a lack of faith. It frustrates me. I don't, I don't like the flesh, right? Can I be honest with you? I don't like the flesh. I, I hate that we still have to wrestle with the flesh and the human mind. And I long for the day when that is gone. When God just fully redeems us and says, now you're perfect and you've been made brand new, and you don't have to worry about sin anymore. You don't have to worry about struggling with the flesh anymore. I want so badly on this earth to do the things that I should do and not the things that I shouldn't do, and yet the battle continues and continues and continues. There's an author by the name of Fleming Rutledge who offers this Advent thought. She says, I am bothered by the constant refrain that this is not who we are. She says, people and nations alike are a mingled yarn, good and ill together. It's better to say, this is not who we can be, or this is not what I hope to be by the grace of God. And that's where I find myself on a day like today. That instead of just lamenting the fact that there are so many things that are not as they should be, with myself, with God's church, with the world, I want my response to instead be, we are not who we can be and one day will be by the grace of God. And that's where the hope of Advent comes in. You and I are not yet who we could be in Christ. 
The church is not yet what it should be in Christ. Our world is not yet what it should be in Christ. But we know that, that we are not the way that we, by the grace of God, will one day be. And there is a one day coming. Just as God told the people of Israel in Amos 9, Behold, the days are coming. I believe God says to us today, Behold, the days are coming when everything is going to be made right. And therein lies the hope. Because hope means that we have this expectation that something better is coming for us. Better days, better moments, better lives, something better is on the horizon. Right? That's what, that's what hope does. Hope gives you this expectation, this conviction that one day things are going to be better. And so we look at the world and we look at ourselves and we realize what we're capable of, what kind of sins we ourselves are truly capable of. And we know in our heart that God is going to take all of that away one day. That God is one day going to send Jesus back and he's going to make everything right in us. I was explaining yesterday to Jude just, you know, that, hey, tomorrow is church and it's the start of Advent. And, hey, Jude, do you happen to know what Advent's all about? You know, and he says, no, what does that even mean? And so I tell him what it's about. And I said, listen, you know how Jesus came before and he was born? He came from heaven. He was born on earth. Well, one day he's going to come back. He's going to come back and he's going to gather us all up together. And he's going to make us perfect. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And you know what his response was? He said, really? That's so cool. I want to have that kind of response every single day during Advent, every single day of the year. When I think about that future coming of Jesus, I want to think that is just so cool that Jesus is going to come back one day. And that's real. He's going to come back and he's going to make everything right. And that is what gives me so much hope. Advent reminds us that the world is broken and that we are waiting on someone to come and fix it. And God has promised that one day Jesus will. One day Jesus will come back and fix it. And that's our hope. Amen? Let's stand together and let's worship the Lord one more time, if you will. We're going to sing, Give Us Clean Hands. My clicker isn't working, so I don't know what page number we're on. Becky, do you? 590, Give Us Clean Hands. Make this your prayer to the Lord this morning as we continue with our Advent worship. Give us clean hands and pure hearts.